we must admit that we do not have the situation under control. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. Welcome to the world we want. Youth voices on climate and health. My name is Jonathan Foster. And in this second series, we continue meeting some of the world's most engaging and thought-provoking youth activists. We get their views not only on the reality of our current environmental and health crisis, but also about the possibilities, alternatives and ideas for transformation and change. We find out what youth activists are thinking and doing, and we find out what you can do to help build the world we want. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. Hello. In this episode, we have the wonderful human being, Lavatilangi Siru. If you've been listening from the beginning of our first series, you'll remember Lave from the very first episode, where he talked about his hopes and eventual feelings on COP26. Lave Telangi Siru is a climate justice activist from Fiji. He's working on youth development, climate change, gender and human rights, and social inclusion in disaster risk reduction. You can find out more about Lave's work in the show notes. Now, Lavatilangisiru is also a youth representative at the PMAC 2023 conference held in Bangkok, Thailand from the 27th to the 29th of January 2023. He'll be on a panel called Elevating the Voices of Young People for Climate Action and Lave is sharing that space on that panel with some previous friends of the pod, Maximo Masuko from Argentina, Dr. Omnia El Omrani from Egypt, as well as Mohamed Aisa from Egypt and Shresha Nankwa from Nepal. So go and find out more about these amazing youth leaders, as well as more about the PMAC 2023 conference at www.pmac2023.com. That's www.pmac2023.com. It was a great pleasure to speak to Lave, and you'll find his interview fascinating. But first, a little introduction. Throughout this series of podcasts, I've used the phrase values and principles over and over again you've probably noticed. Now, one reason is that I don't want to refer to capitalism too often, because for many reasons, people react in a strange way to our current dominant socio-economic system. People have been conditioned to react quickly and somewhat thoughtlessly, as if capitalism wasn't a socio-economic system at all, but a much-loved sports team or a family member being bad-mouthed by the neighbours. People feel that any critique of the way we are organising power in our society is a critique of their own personality. So, to bypass this reflex, I've used phrases like values and principles 
to talk about the obligations and the ideals and the customs that we hold in the highest esteem. I'm talking about the ruling opinions and standards that inform the choices and decisions being made by people in power all the time. Now, these choices and decisions are what create and drive the institutions and the corporations and the laws and all the various things that underpin our societies. And they create outcomes. They create externalities. And these outcomes and externalities create the shape of things today and into the future. Now, why am I saying all of this? I mean, it's pretty obvious. Yes. But our ability to continue as a complex and thriving human civilization is at enormous risk. We are experiencing a climate, biodiversity and health crisis that is threatening to drive our current civilizations to extinction. And the question is, how have we got here? How have we found ourselves at a time in history when the choices and actions we take today could mean the difference between life and death for us and for future generations? How have we got to a place where a young person like Greta Thunberg is compelled to make speeches in a desperate attempt to remind those who make the choices and decisions of their responsibilities to all life on earth. Speeches where she says things like, and I quote, we are about to sacrifice our civilization for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue to make enormous amounts of money. We are about to sacrifice the biosphere so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. But it is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. Okay, so the answers to these questions are obviously complex. We all know that. But they're also simple. The answer to these questions lies in the values and the principles that have brought us to this delicate and dangerous place. And it is these values and principles that we must address. That's why people like Lavatilangi Siru are extremely important, because they help to re-evaluate what we as a society and we as individuals are thinking and what we are doing. They help to ask the questions that shine a light on our current set of values and principles, and they help us to imagine alternatives. Today, we find ourselves deeper in the environmental and health crisis, and it's time to have an open mind to new or to old ways of relating to the world. Time to privilege a wider range of values and principles. And this is what youth activists like Lave are trying to do, to navigate from a world of peril to a world in balance. So, Lavi, I'm interested to hear about how you developed a relationship with nature, how you came to understand yourself as an integral part of nature. Could you talk to me a little about growing up in Fiji and developing uh, the indigenous understanding of nature? Yeah, I, I grew up in a, a small town about an hour's you know, drive away from the main city. It's called, uh, it is called Nusori. 
And there was a point in time when we had to, to go to the village. And, and we spent three years in the village. And that exposure in you know, village life exposed us to you know, this community and also cultural, you know, sort of learning uh, about our traditional uh, history, also getting to learn about things of, that were significant to us as indigenous people. Uh, and, and these are what we, we call ourselves the Itoki people. And there were things of significance to us that we were taught about you know, respecting and, and protecting uh, nature and then protecting the ocean. It, it was a coastal community. So we were taught about things like, you know, if you go and fish, uh, take whatever is needed for that particular day. You don't fish more than what you need. If you need fish again tomorrow, then you go back to fishing tomorrow. When we go out farming, we were taught, you know, we taught things like if you need to break a branch or you know a few leaves from a tree because you need it for medicine or you needed it for for food you were taught to ask the plants and the trees and and tell them the reason you're doing that and you know for instance you would say um i i'm sorry that i have to break you off uh, like you know break a few leaves but i we need it for medicine for the family so it was that kind of um deep connection with nature that we were uh, taught. And, and I don't think that we would have been taught that if, you know, living in, you know, uh, even in like a town or city life. So being immersed in a culture that not only understands the fragility of nature, but also knows how to live within the life-supporting systems is something that needs to be learned by, well, <laughs> by the rest of the market-based world, right? Uh, we need to learn that especially when it comes to extraction and exploitation. Uh, we need to learn that sustainability has to be, and if you excuse the pun, it has to be second nature. But talk to me a little bit about your lived experience of this climate emergency, a little bit about your schooling. How was the climate emergency presented to you? So we got to not only learn about how connected we are as Itauke people to our land and also to our oceans, but also one of the things that we were exposed to at that point in time was sea level rise. So as a coastal community, we saw how the you know, storm surges, um, the waves would continuously erode land, arable lands, threatening uh, the livelihoods of you know, people who depend on that land, who are farming. And we were sort of lucky because um, we were at a high ground. And, uh, and so we were always worried about these families of ours who were living close to the, uh, to the sea, who, were, you know, who saw land um, eroding. And, and so what they did was they built a, a seawall out of you know, rocks. Uh, but over the years, even during my last visit, late last year, during Christmas, you know, those rocks have you know, broken apart. Those were some of the exposures we were uh, exposed to when we were growing up. Uh, and, and then I went to a boarding school um, where I took geography and I got to learn more about, uh, you know, the, the greenhouse gases um, and how that was impacting, you know, 
climate um, and, and temperatures around the world, uh, threatening food security, et cetera. And I didn't get to sort of hear climate change as sort of a buzzword until I was in university. And, and then university also sort of connected the dots to me to say, you know, what you're experiencing in the village is, you know, is a result of, you know, fossil fuel consumption across the world that's, you know, polluting the atmosphere, depleting the ozone layers, um, melting the, the polar ice caps and, you know, increasing, um, you know, sea level rise. We know for a fact that in the Pacific, we, we often have, we have a six month period from November to April, which we call the cyclone season. So cyclones normally happen during that period. And that's because it's sort of um, what you would say summertime. So we only have two seasons, like summer and, and then winter from May onwards, it's a bit cold. And when I say cold, it's, um, <laughs> you might laugh because to us cold is like 19 degrees. <laughs> that that's cold for me too lave but to be honest it's minus 19 <laughs> yeah so for us cold is like 19 degrees and and so during the cyclone season what we've experienced and what we've observed is the cyclones have become more intense and also more frequent so intense because we know that the ocean um, sorry, the, the cyclones, they derive their energy and that's how tropical cyclones form. They derive their energy from the warmth of the ocean. And as the ocean continues to warm, tropical cyclones become more intense. And so 2016, when we experienced tropical cyclone Winston, I was in university and I was living with my grandparents. We were lucky, but the village where I was from almost 80% of the houses were fully damaged. They lost their sources of livelihoods. Farms were destroyed. It was like um, a dead zone. Uh, people were evacuated um, and, and were staying for weeks in the church, in the hall. And that experience um, sort of bolstered my work in, in the climate justice space to demand for justice, to demand for more climate action, to bring about the necessary changes that's required in order to save the planet and in order to save our people. So uh, that experience, as you say, bolstered your climate activism, or maybe we shouldn't use the word activism and, and call it climate humanism, you know, uh, the kind of thing that a person with a conscience and a moral compass should be involved with. Um, but anyway, yeah, tell me about how Cyclone Winston affected your climate work. Um, you know, it sort of injected a, uh, a sense of uh, drive into the work that I was doing. Um, and even then, you know, I was working as a volunteer. I wasn't being paid. Uh, I think for at least two or three years, I wasn't being paid. I was just doing it out of, um, you know, vol like voluntarily. So I would uh, attend meetings, be part of campaign meetings, organize, mobilize communities, uh, go out to communities, carry out training on, on climate and also linking that with gender, linking that with uh, human rights and how people's rights has been violated. 
and infringed. In particular, we were we did some work with LGBTQI people. Um, so Fiji, um, the main island, the Western division is what we call the tourism hub uh, because they've really got some really nice sandy beach, white beaches, um, you know, really clear, pristine waters where, you know, you can go and dive and um, snorkel, et cetera. So, you know, many people work in the, in the tourism industry, including most of persons of diverse sexual orientation, gender identity, LGBTQI people. So, and, and, and one of the things that we were, came out after Winston was the LGBTQI people were blamed uh, by the rest of the community um, and, and, and were told that, you know, because of your sinful ways, you know, you are engaging in, you know, sort of other extracurricular activities with the tourists, um, God has punished us. Uh, and the way he's punished us is sending, you know, God will continue to punish us by sending, uh, you know, more intense, frequent um, uh, disasters like tropical cyclones. And, and it just further marginalized LGBTQI people who were already marginalized. There were instances where they were unable to access evacuation centers because evacuation centers were churches. Uh, there were instances where they were unable to access uh, humanitarian aid because, you know, the humanitarian, uh, well, I'm not going to say humanitarian, but the people who were um, distributing the humanitarian aid were very conservative civil servants. Uh, and, and, and they would say, you know, you do not fall, you know, you do not fall into, um, you know, what we deem as a family. Uh, you know, you should go back to your family. So there was a lot of challenges. Um, these were some of the experiences that have been highlighted. Uh, and I think just gave me that push to uh, not only push for climate justice, but also to push for, you know, gender justice, uh, social inclusion, uh, and, you know, trying to address some of these systemic and also structural um, challenges that uh, communities in, in Fiji were facing. Let me just break in here for a moment and make a comment about microcosms and macrocosms. You know, small island nations can be seen as a microcosm of the rest of the world. Pointing the finger and blaming marginalised communities is a way of avoiding the reality of the situation. And that is not specific to any island nation. This refusal to accept that climate change is a consequence of the values and principles of powerful nations is going on all around the world, especially in powerful nations. Right now, there are people working very hard to convince us all to be afraid of our neighbour or weaker, more vulnerable people, immigrants or refugees or environmentalists or people who express their gender in non-binary ways. These people are not the problem. The multi-crisis brought on by our current values and principles, that's the problem. So I asked Lavatilangi about how he describes climate change in relationship to inequality or sexism or colonialism and how climate change has exacerbated all these already existing problems. So, yeah, climate change has further exacerbated many of these injustices 
that people are experiencing, whether it's you know sexism, whether it's stigma and discrimination against you know marginalized groups, it has further deepened inequalities between the the haves and the have-nots. So one of the things that we've observed is when you know after disasters, farmers are affected, women are affected because you know they're unable to go back to their livelihoods that has been destroyed. And and so for them, it's not easy to get assistance. There are not many opportunities for them. Like, you know, you have people who are rich enough that they have backup generators. They have big water tanks. But for ordinary people, a woman, woman and girls and even elderly people, it would mean being without waters for days means them having to walk for hundreds of meters to get water for the family. And that places pressure and a, a whole deal of also, you know, psychological and, and mental effect on their bodies as individuals. For fisher folks, for instance, you know, they have to go deeper into the ocean to get, to, to make a good catch. And, and that puts them at risk when they move out of the reef. Normally they would fish, you know, within the reef, but when you have this kind of, you know, warming ocean, you know, migration of fish to more cooler waters, coral die-offs, ocean acidification, migration of fish stocks. People put themselves to, you know, under threat when they have to move beyond, you know, their normal fishing ground where they've always fished. Women and girls, they have to walk distances to, you know, to, to, to farm. We went to a community where the sea was coming into the village when it's high tide. You, you had the, the tide coming into the village. And what happened was you had these very small crabs that usually, that usually comes in with the, the tide. If you go to the beach, they're sort of multicolored, orange, purple sometimes. And, and what these small crabs were doing, they were eating away vegetables from backyard gardens. If we were to receive visitors, it was a very, you know, you don't have to go to the farm. You could usually just pick a few vegetables and crops. And, and then cook and, and make it for the visitors or even for the family. So they, they weren't able to do that anymore. And, and so, again, circling back to what you said earlier, you know, climate change is further exacerbating these injustices, these inequalities, not only between the haves and the have-nots, but also between, you know, groups of you know, different groups of people, men and women, people with disabilities, LGBTQI, etc. Okay, Lavi, you're painting a really fascinating picture there. Um, on the one hand, we have indigenous knowledge and the relationship and values and principles of indigenous experience, which is incredibly invaluable, uh, you know, important for creating a long-term sustainability and a balanced relationship. We do not have that in industrial societies with our extraction model, right? But on the other hand, you're also illuminating a kind of misunderstanding of LGBTQ lifestyles. Um, so there is a kind of conservatism uh, to the views of certain indigenous, certain parts of indigenous culture. Um, and so how do you feel about the schism between these two sides? On the one hand, sort of excellent sustainability, and on the other hand, a sort of problematic social view? Thank you. That's a very good question. And I know in your earlier question, you were asking about colonization. You know, 
colonization, industrialization. This was, you know, this was happening at an era when these developed countries were trying to, you know, pursue economic growth. They were trying to pursue, you know, in the name of development and progress. You know, there was a huge demand for energy. This is coal and other forms of fossil fuel were, were you know, sort of, there was a large, you know, investment into those to extract fossil fuel. And, and, and you know, even Fiji had, you know, we were colonized by the British. Most of our resources were exploited, shipped away from the islands. We had Indians who were brought into the country to work in sugarcane farms so that they can produce sugar for the British economies. But also one of the things that came with that is, you know, like religion in, you know, in the name of change. And, and, and basically, you know, that the process of colonization and, and bringing religion in, you know, change some of the fundamental way that our societies have, you know, have operated. For instance, we know that pre-colonization, People of diverse sexual orientation and gender identities, or what we would say, you know, people of third gender identities, they were well recognized within our Pacific cultures. They were recognized, but when religion was introduced, you know, it was seen as, you know, very ungodly, it was sinful. And so, you know, there was... And, you know, the British came with their own laws, including sodomy laws. So these were, you know, sort of phased out. And, and again, the, the creation of, you know, the climate crisis was because of the same, you know, colonial powers, developed countries. And so the Pacific hasn't only suffered from colonization, but is now suffering, you know, suffering from a climate crisis that's further driving, you know, groups apart. You know, one one groups, the conservatives are pointing at the LGBTQI and say, "This is your fault," and so it's sort of a double impact and sometimes triple sort of effect that it has had on colonized countries. We not only have lost our cultures and traditions and, you know, our social way of life where we've, you know, accepted third gender identities, where we've, you know, had very vibrant, you know, societies, but we are now, we've moved, you know, we've been pushed away from that. And now we are experiencing a climate crisis that further, you know, drive, is driving a lot of conflict within our societies. If you look at some of the, you know, the, the impact of climate displacement as communities are migrating, as communities are moving to new lands, there's also conflict between the host communities and the communities that, that are migrating. There's a lot of arguments about land, about marine resources, you know, so it's, it's just driving that conflict within communities. And we could expect more of this. Politically, if you look at Fiji's political history, when the Indians were brought about by this, the British to, you know, to farm lands, to farm, you know, to, to manage the, the sugarcane farms, the British left and left the Indians behind, okay? So over time, there's been this growing ethnic and racial divide and conflict between the indigenous people, the Italke people, and also, the Indo-Fijians, you know, Fijians of Indian, Indian descent. We've 
Fiji's political history, we've experienced three coups, coup takeover. The first military coup, there was two military coups in 1987. And the reason for that was because of the racial and ethnic tension between the Indians and the Fijians. The Indians were taking a leap and progress in commerce, in financial sectors, you know, and the Fijians were threatened by that, that they were buying up more land, that, you know, they were, they were booming business. And so having been, you know, threatened by the Indians, they staged the first 1987 coup, there was another coup in 1987. Then there was a 2000 coup when there was Indian elected as a prime minister. There was a mil- there was a civilian takeover to topple that government. That ra- racial and ethnic divisions is because of the conflict. Not I mean, if you look deeper, it's about access to resources. And so when you have climate change, when you have growing numbers of people being displaced, when you have livelihoods disrupted, what we could expect is that these racial and ethnic divisions or conflicts can be heightened. Um, yeah. So, uh, Lave, that's an excellent explanation you've given there. Um, it's almost like a microcosm of ongoing conflicts around the entire world, right? I mean, you've got a complex moving tension between values and principles, which is feeding into social relations which is causing racial tensions and all of this has been affected by the uh, climate emergency quite a kaleidoscope of interconnected problems so my question uh, as a youth activist and i apologize now for always asking for, for solutions what solution do you see how do we get on a road to recovery that's that's a really good question when we sort of you know looked back at our political history, when we look at the kind of threat um, that climate change will have, uh, and when we look closely at Fiji, we knew that, you know, this is something we need to anticipate, the racial and ethnic divisions, you know, the social tensions, etc. So one of the work that we've been involved in, that we started in 2020, um, and so one of the work that we've been doing is trying to foster peace. When we discuss, like, how do we actually foster peace? So we saw dialogues between the two racial groups as a starting point. We needed to bring the groups together and have a dialogue and sort of, you know, demystify or debunk some of the the misconception that each racial and ethnic group had about each other. And so bringing them to understand each other's culture, understand how um, we think about the other group is fundamental to, to peace building. Unless we address those, we, we can move we can move forward as you know um, as, as a country. We'll always be caught up in this racial and ethnic uh, you know um, tensions well unfortunately at this moment there was a power cut and our conversation was brought to an abrupt end i want to thank labe for sharing his experiences and his knowledge and for reminding us all that the way forward 
through the challenges of climate-related tensions is to have an open mind, to embrace our differences, and be ready to question our worldviews, so as to be sure we are not undermining the chance for others to thrive. And don't forget, you can hear more from Lavatalangesiru at the PMAC 2023 conference in Bangkok, Thailand, on the 27th to the 29th of January, 2023. Thanks for listening. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. This podcast was brought to you by the Prince Mahadon Award Conference and Jonathan Foster of Foster Media, in collaboration with the Swedish Institute for Global Health Transformation, FHI360, the World Health Organization, the British Medical Journal, and USAID.